Hello and welcome at last to the next uh, Bone Ditch by Ian Bird. I'm Ian Bird and Bone Ditch can be found at www.boneditch.wordpress.com which is where we keep short stories, excerpts, uh, Kindle editions, all that kind of gubbins. Anyway, you're here because of the story which has been a long, long, long time delayed but is finally ready. This is the final part of chapter two. It's Gobbit 6 and it's called Down the Rabbit Hole. The rag and bow man pulled over and switched off his engine at last. He had driven all night to get here in time for sunrise. The effort had been worth it. He got out of the car and stretched. The air was chilly, but so fresh it filled him with an energised joy that twelve and a half hours and seven hundred miles should have crushed with diesel fumes, service station burgers and the grinding streaks of neon and bollards. There was purple in the air and vanilla gold spun out across the delicate and fragrant immensity of the sky. The old hippie was delighted. That air and the rock of the mountainscape rising up around him and the chalky turquoise of the sea down below him, it was a good morning for the elements and therefore a good augur for the day ahead. He was visiting a witch who gloried and paid special homage to these spheres and showing the elements the requisite respect before meeting with her would stand him in good stead. This witch was not ordinarily dangerous, but like all her kind she broadcast on more subtle frequencies than most people could discern and in turn detected in those people grades and shades that they might consider impeccably hidden beneath their faces. It was important to remember this and consider it alongside the fact that most witches had deliberately set aside at least part of their humanity in order to walk their path. Sometimes that part of their humanity might simply be their shadow or their ambition for material gain or their consolation in short-term goals, but the rag and bone man knew that sometimes that sacrificed aspect of the witch's experience could be a capacity for mercy or forgiveness or understanding. So he took a talisman from his pocket a stainless steel cigarette lighter he had stolen from a murdered nun in Kalemi, and lit it. The orange flame billowed and roared in the mountain sea air, completing the elemental circle. He looked around and eventually spotted the crow that was watching him. The bird flew off, taking word of his arrival back to the witch. He left the car and followed the crow, carrying his battered satchel. He had better hurry or he would lose her. The crow soared high, hovering so that the rag and bone man could get closer, then dropped down out of sight towards the shore. He clambered over a short stone wall, hopped over a ditch, walked up a steep embankment and then slowly staggered down the other side to the deserted coastline below. Further up the beach was the small wooden shack, smoke rising from the chimney. The rag and bone man put his hand back in his jacket pocket and gently cradled the raven skull by his hip, gilded in a dirty tin and gold alloy, allowing it to dampen down his fear. Fear would be toxic here, it would offend the witch and endanger himself. The golden raven skull was his totem, and as he stroked it, he said his prayer. Heaven's no prize when you feel that one itch. Rag and bone men and women are not allowed keys or clocks. Without places of storage or the means to measure time, they rarely accrue belongings, which means that the few things they own are usually rich in association and power. This rag and bone man was no exception. He had been in the trade for almost 20 years and understood the importance of being able to tread lightly, but with meaning. His tattoos crackled signalling it was safe to approach the shack. All these rituals and observations and thoughts were just good practice. The rag and bone man didn't know whether he believed in the mechanics behind them all. Like a lot of people in the trade, he maintained a sceptical open-mindedness, a hesitation between belief systems. He was not going to ignore centuries of painstakingly assembled scientific observation, but at the same time he was not going to ignore the fact that he had once spent all night talking with an exorcist and found absolutely nothing in all he had heard which he could have reasonably argued with. Sometimes a crow is just a crow. Sometimes the crackling of intricately plotted tattoos when entering a place of profound spiritual significance is just the pre-verbal processing of deep sensory cues as external phenomenon. Sometimes it's just foolish to assume that the night is merely an absence of light when it could be a vast obsidian being filling your entire line of sight and watching you. It pays to be polite. It was there in the word witch the rag and bone man had once been told. The word isn't a noun, it's a question, a fork in the road, a choice between paths. And at crossroads you should always beware of strangers that you meet. The witch opened her front door, actually her only door, and crossed over her threshold to watch her visitor arrive. She was short but muscular, and draped in ragged shawls and skirts and jackets. Her long, coarse hair was grey, and threaded with dreadlocks and shells. Her throat was protected with lengths of leather, iron and silver, and her fingers were heavy with ornately brutal rings. 
The rag and bone man recognised the flensed bones that were studded here and there, their apparently random pattern probably adhering to three different alignments of protection and defence. Even here in her home territory, the witch was wary. This was sensible. Strangers had been arriving to kill her kind for centuries. What are you looking for? the witch asked. I've come from the bone ditch. I'm of the trade. Her name was Pirate Jenny. She was in her late sixties and had been living on this beach for most of them. People thought she was called Pirate Jenny because of her eye patch, but the tradesman had heard the truth. The trade, eh? What have you brought me? He smiled. This was his favourite part of the job. I have a message from Sam Hain. The pirate witch smiled long and deep and sad. Sam Hain is dead. There's all sorts of dead, he replied. Do you want to trade? She stepped back and gestured for him to enter her shack. It was dark and cramped inside the witch's bolt hole. They said that places like this had to be built over the course of one night if they were going to be properly protected from magic and taxation, so they were often small and strange, built from what was immediately available. She poured him some tea from her kettle hung over her fire. Have a nice cup of tea, she said. What else can I offer you? I'm looking for information, he replied, about someone who might be living close to you. I won't betray a confidence, she said. The bone ditch can hunt her own prey. Not prey, I promise. She nodded. I'll trade your message for an honest intention to answer your question. He wasn't going to get better than that. It's a deal, he said. He took his ledger de man from his satchel and wrote down the details of the trade with his fountain pen. The witch looked interested in the book. Ledgers de man are hard to come by. Once completed, they get left in libraries, hidden in bookstores or discarded in pubs, jettisoned memoirs, inventories and grimoires and enemies lists and directories and maps to worlds that could only occasionally be said to exist. Rag and bone men and women are encouraged to log their strange lives as they peregrinate. But although their lives are rarefied and strange, they cannot carry with them a whole library of experiences and knowledge. So, once absorbed, they shed their ledges, like a tree sheds its leaves, so that the stories can take up other lives elsewhere. There are rumours that libraries have been established because other books have accreted to a discarded ledger, attracted and attached by some odd magnetism. Sam Hain survived Brimston, said the rag and bone man. She managed to get to San Francisco. She had to slough several fictions, and she's raw and honest these days, but she's also safe and growing stronger. She won't be Sam Hain for much longer. That isn't a message, that's a Facebook status, said the witch. He was sitting on a pile of rags, facing a hexagenarian hag across an open fire on a deserted beach. You know what Facebook is? The witch shrugged and gestured to a leather-bound volume lying on top of a wooden chest that was pockmarked with bullet holes. He noticed the book had eyelashes and changed the subject taking a sip of his tea. She wanted me to tell you that she was safe and that she'd be able to send messages to you directly by the trade winds once you knew what to look for. She said to say that she had taken your advice and it had worked. She said that she had made a friend and that she is singing again. She isn't going to be chasing mysteries for a while and she said that the woman in question no longer has as many questions. And she said that she loves you and misses you. The witch looked satisfied. Now, my request. Pirate Jenny smiled at the rag and bone man. There was a knock at the door of the shack. She smiled wider and went to the door. Before she opened it, she looked back at the rag and bone man. Stay still, don't move. He won't see you if you don't move. The witch opened the door. A tall, thin man stood there, nervous, holding a sheaf of papers. Georgie, come on in. He ducked down and joined her in the shack. The shack should have felt claustrophobic. One inch to the left and the new arrival would be standing on the tradesman's foot. But somehow there was room to hide. Somehow Georgie didn't notice the stranger just next to him. How can I help you, Georgie? We heard back from McIlvaney yesterday. They are definitely terminating the contract. The post office will be closed by the end of the week. We expected that, she said. But she hushed him and poured him a cup of her tea, gesturing for him to sit down at the opposite end of the shack to the rag and bone man. Clearly this bolt hole was darker than it seemed to the tradesman, because even now Georgie didn't see him. He just sat there drinking his tea. It seemed to be a different tea to the brew she had prepared for him, thought the rag and bone man, even though it came from the same kettle, because it seemed to be affecting Georgie strangely. He had slumped back against the shack wall, slightly, and his eyes seemed to be losing their focus. Jenny took the papers from her visitor and read through them. She read quickly, like a starling picking clean a carcass, keen eyes clearly finding every morsel. The council are still claiming that there isn't demand for the service, she said. Georgie nodded. It's ridiculous. We've had every family in the village write in, but they're still saying we're too small. It's the same argument they use for the library and the Citizens Advice Bureau. And how is Dr Gainsborough, she asked. He's still talking about Spain. I wish his brother hadn't visited. It's all he can do now to pay attention to his own patients. Jack said he'd shown up at the old Clutie last night, talking about selling up again. 
I don't know why he says selling, hissed Jenny. No one's buying. Well, exactly, said Georgie. The village will lose everything, and so quickly. They've all decided to, to, to come at once. It's happening everywhere else, and it's happening here. They say that it's national, rational, and necessary. They're saying it's good, risk-based management. I'm letting them down, Jenny. I don't think there's an answer. Shh. Pirate Jenny rose up between the two men, her back to the tradesman, and pushed Georgie further down against the wall. His seat was actually a bench, or a bed, and as Jenny pushed, she also started to undo his clothing. Her hushing turned into some sibilant hiss that draped and slithered around the room like an octopus. The tradesman couldn't make out what she was saying, but Georgie clearly could. He sighed and stretched himself out. Jenny removed her eye patch, and Georgie stared into her face, suddenly transfixed. The tradesman couldn't see what was happening, but was surprised to find that he wasn't squirming. This sort of thing usually made him uncomfortable. He wondered what Georgie had seen under the eye patch, but didn't want to look himself. The stench of the tea suddenly rose up at him and he found himself slightly stunned and smiling. The witch knew what she was doing. She was emptying Georgie's pockets, leafing through his wallet, flicking through his mobile phone. As she did so, she kissed him, and on the other side of the shack, the tradesman found himself licking his own lips. Shadows spread out from the witch and her lover, and the air was full of the fluttering of tentacles and wings. White birds, doves or owls were there in them with him, perhaps, because the dark air was suddenly filled with an agitation of bone-white leaves, or knives, or sheaths. It became hard to make out what was happening. Georgie was crying, or sobbing, or laughing. A wet cackle span out of Pirate Jenny. In the shadows, the rag and bone man was able to make out familiar smells. The rotten shoreline, the copper twang of blood, something very old, impossibly old. A midnight library in the librarian you find there. The taste on your tongue of a secret you are about to spit out in spite of your best intentions. Pirate Jenny continued to laugh. The rag and bone man was suddenly sitting out on the shoreline, his boots white with a powdered bone from beneath the rocks and sand and crushed shells of the beach. The air was clear again, and so was his head. Time had passed. It was late in the afternoon. There was a small fire flickering in front of him, and next to him sat the witch. You drugged me. She shrugged, but didn't look up from her work. Georgie wasn't there, but his papers and things were. She had a notebook open on her lap and was jotting notes. He organised a mailing list, she said, but satisfied himself with the families living within the village lines. What? asked the rag and bone man. And he's written an application for this grant, but he's been a fool. Even if he gets funding, it will only last for the next tax year, and then he'll be expected to be able to demonstrate outputs that will be impossible until year three. He'll lose all momentum chasing this down, and then the second tranche of funding will be pulled out from under him, and he'll have nothing, having already committed to spending plans that will cripple him with withdrawal fees and penalties. She looked at him and smiled. Georgie and his wee pals used to creep down to my shack when they were about 15, 30, 35 years ago now. They'd tell each other that they'd come to throw rocks through my windows, but that was just to make themselves feel big. I don't have windows. They'd think that they wanted to take a look at me to see if I was to their taste, but that was just to stop themselves from being afraid. They'd actually come to see if I would like the taste of them. Georgie was lucky. He's done well, and he'll do better. She looked back down at the papers, suddenly looking like a schoolteacher marking homework. His list of potential corporate partners has three names on it. Have you ever lived in a world that had only three names on it? Pirate Jenny pulled out a laptop from beneath her shawl. It was a laptop in the early years of the 21st century, so by definition it was state-of-the-art, but it looked ancient. It was bulky and thick, made of rubbery green plastic, and actually featured a hand crank and solar panel. Twin aerials were folded out of it, picking up some signal that he would have thought impossible all the way out here. He recognised it as one of those $99 solid-state wireless laptops they mass-produced for not-for-profits in Africa, affordable mass communication. Actually, he had always wanted one. The witch got it started and started typing away. Two towns over, said Jenny, which is 40 miles away but who's counting, they've opened a golf course hotel complex. I've seen the plans for its future, it's going to fail. It's doomed on political, financial and moral grounds, which is a confluence that's almost impossible to achieve in this economic climate. But the fools who run it have left access points, glory holes if you like, for their clients to touch the ground outside their borders. She smiled. I can see them, I can download their names. Look. I've been doing it for months. Tourists who have been exploring the country, leaving only footprints, taking only photographs, but also sniffing our air and not noticing it infect them. And I've also been managing local history and genealogical websites and online forums for over a year. Folklore and ghost stories, family tales of ruin and mystery that are catnip to a certain kind of tourist. That's another list of names for Georgie. Wealthy tourists who don't want their safari to be in the middle of a graveyard and want their oldie-worldie to be creaking but not broken. She made eye contact with the tradesman. 
No offence. And these companies are the ones he should be approaching. Look, she hacked out a spreadsheet, cross-related with the names and email addresses of directors and senior executives. Fields in the spreadsheet were filled with personal details, complex and profane biographical information that shouldn't exist on a clockwork laptop on a beach in the Highlands. The council have made their website difficult to navigate, but I made a point of getting to know the programmer. Look, I pull forms from here, from behind, instead of from the front, and now I have access to a much better environment for cross-populating the database with meta-algorithms for rating more preferentially. See me looking at you, see me watching you, unable to look away from me. She grinned through thin yellow teeth. And this is all open source. I still don't have windows. And don't you taste nice? That's brilliant, said the Rag and Bone Man. It's good project management, said Pirate Jenny, and the manipulation of all spheres of knowledge and operation. He grinned, enjoying enormously the sensation of being impressed. You're saying this is magic, said the Rag and Bone Man. She disconnected a USB flash drive and set it down with Georgie's things. I'm saying that Georgie now has a proposal for combining the post office with the library service to save rents and costs and increase footfall at the same time, plus a mailing list of 40,000 names of people who will support local investment in infrastructure and 17 grant applications to local, national and European funding portals. He also has material that will inspire Dr Gainsborough to maintain his practice for another three years, long enough for us to source someone to take on his clinic when he eventually retires to Spain. It only looks like magic because you didn't see all the work that went into it and because I fucked you in your brain when you weren't paying attention. Now ask for your information. The rag and bone man smiled. I heard a rumour that someone around here has obtained something they're calling the Mayuchi Vendetta. I heard they might be looking to trade. Do you know anything about that? I do, grinned the witch. You're looking for Gavin Donner. He works in a pub called the Old Clutie on the other side of London. Tell him I sent you. Tell him that. London was the name of the village on the other side of the dunes, the place Pirate Jenny was helping to save from the catastrophic mundanity of the 21st century. 700 people lived in London. It didn't appear on any maps, but it existed for 1,200 years, so in that sense it was the original London. The village had three pubs. The one that the rag and bone man was looking for, Old Clutie, was off away from the shore. It was on a crossroads, like all good things, and by the time he got there it was starting to get dark. Time had moved strangely in the shack, he had lost a day with Pirate Jenny, the Witch of London. But the day had been wonderful. He had a lot to process and was looking forward to telling his colleagues about the strange bureaucratic magic. Observing communal systems always did this to him, he recognised. He had joined the trade to acquire knowledge for its own sake, to know more than other people did. He shouldn't have been surprised to realise that the more he had learned about the world, the more he had traded away his narcissistic view of the importance of personal knowledge in exchange. Tradespeople like him were building their own network, sharing knowledge and understanding across the world, an occult system that added to the beauty of the spell. He smiled and looked forward to smiling at someone. As he reached the pub, he automatically reached into his pocket to find the gold skull. It wasn't there. His shoulders cramped, and he knew that his tattoos were aching. Something was wrong. The front of the pub in front of him was suddenly illuminated by the lights of a vehicle approaching from behind, he stopped walking. He reached again for the skull. It was still missing. The lights of the vehicle went out, but he could still hear its engine. He awoke with the sack over his head and his hands tied behind his back. A bruise the size and consistency of a small peach was throbbing on the back of his skull. God, how he hated peaches. Furry skin, is it a fruit or a piece of meat? His thought trailed off and he struggled against the ropes, but they were tight and his attempt just left a thick red burn on his wrists. There were voices. We got him. It was easy. Yes, definitely from the ditch. Jenny confirmed it. He froze. Hands gripped him and pulled him up. The floor lurched. They were in a small, enclosed box. The echo sounded metallic. A van? It smelled absurdly of old ladies. There was the sound of doors opening and he dropped down onto dirt, cold and filthy and damp. Even from under the sack over his head, he could tell that it was night now. Through the fabric, he could taste it in the air. Her enemies had found him. They would take out their revenge on her through him. They didn't seem like the saint's agents, but you could never tell. He snorted. An hour ago he hadn't believed in the saint, and now he was living in fear of him. The rag and bow man supposed this was how she made normal people feel. He's laughing, said an a woman with an American accent. Did you hear? Steady on, Harriet, said another woman's voice with an English accent. You have to stay cool. A man spoke. He sounded older. I told you, we should have done him there and then. Bringing him here just gave him a chance to wake up. 
The American spoke again. No, we have to do it here. We do it here and he'll tell us everything and he'll stay broken. Anywhere else and he'll be back. Oh, Jesus. Cultists. All the exact opposite. The rational hated the trade almost as much as the cultists, but they would have been less likely to work with a witch. Of course, the rationalists would have said that they were working with a community activist. Either way, he was in a lot of trouble, just so long as they weren't literature graduates. The American woman stammered. Did he, did he attempt to ululate anything eldritch when you hit him? Anything you'd characterise as squamous or tenebrous? Shit. For fuck's sake, Harriet, how do you ululate something squamous? I told you his behaviour won't correspond with what we recognise as natural or even possible. The sack was wrenched off his head and a bright light was blazed into his face. He was instantly a new kind of blind. Blind and surrounded by superstitious literature graduates, he could very well be doomed. There was silence. They were scrutinising him. I don't think he's a thrall of a starfish-headed octopus death god from beyond time and space, Harriet, said the other woman. I think he's my best friend and an idiot. Hello, Dove. His eyes cleared. Between an older man and the nervous literary type stood Elliot Rent. Two hours before, Elliot sat on the rock next to Gavin, staring out across the sea. The blue air was dying into a relentless aggrieved purple, and the waves crashing on the shore were starting to sound closer. She put her arm around the older man. Are you okay? Gavin didn't smile, but his frame relaxed slightly. I didn't sleep well last night. You didn't sleep at all. That isn't unusual, he said, but Harriet's... She's a bit... She's a bit... Don't blame her, said Elliot. Without her, we wouldn't have the Meucci vendetta or the cash to carry this whole thing off. And be honest, without her, we'd have found a way to rationalise not going through with it. She's a crazy person, said Gavin. Remind me how many breakdowns we've had between us? Gavin laughed. You're complicated. I've got mental health issues. She's insane. I read a good distinction the other day, said Elliot. I meant to tell you about it. It goes something like, you live in a difficult world where nothing is straightforward and can be trusted or taken at face value, and that's the horrifying and unpredictable landscape of the world that no one else can recognise or truly understand. Meanwhile, she lives in the normal world, with rhyme and reason and robust and rational shared values. It just happens also to be host to a single massively surreal, impossible and alien presence. It's the old story. I say potato, you say potato famine. She says, in his house in Rilia, dead Cthulhu waits dreaming. That doesn't reassure me that our plan is going to work, said Gavin. The witch just called Harriet to say that he was with her. She said that she would send him our way once the sun is down. Gavin was silent. Are you scared, she said. Jenny isn't a witch, he replied. You shouldn't call her that. She's a sweet old lady people have been making fun of all her life. Gavin, are you scared? I'm scared of answers. What if he gives us answers? Then you might sleep better tonight. Or I might sleep a whole lot worse. Elliot nudged him in the ribs. Now you're getting it. Won't it be nice to be afraid of a horror that lives outside of your skull? Elliot stretched out her legs. They ached, cramping and damp and old. Who doesn't love watching the sun go down over the sea from the ancient, lonely Scottish highlands, sitting next to an old friend? She had wanted to have a drink, but Harriet had forbade it. Any mind-altering substances, she had claimed, would give the rag and bone man away past their cognitive functions and defences. He'll start bending angles and whispering in the darkness, Harriet had explained. Fine. Professor Harriet Elderlock was an expert, and it would be silly to ignore her advice just because it was ridiculous. From Harriet's perspective, Elliot and Gavin's explanations were ridiculous. That was the whole point. Nothing made sense, although they were working their way through all the shades of nonsense until one fitted. Was Harriet always like this? Gavin asked. For as long as I've known her, but that really isn't that long. I found her on an internet message board, ranting about, you know, bone ditch. Yes, said Elliot. Her sister died really badly but everyone treated it like it was a big joke. It seems her sister was this, this awful human being and nothing bad enough could ever happen to her. Some people saw her death as her suffering a psychotic break. Others saw it as just deserts. Harriet, meanwhile, saw it as demonic possession. Given where she worked, she wasn't short of potential culprits. Harriet heard some of the same bone-ditch stories I've been telling you over the years and they made sense to her, took root. Poor woman, said Gavin. Her outrage keeps away her fear. Most of her fear. Elliot wasn't scared, but she was old and cold. She stood up, groaned, and wandered back to her van to get a sweater. Then she'd be able to enjoy the sunset. This was her third van. She'd bought this one eight or so years before, after the last one had fallen to pieces after that business in Prague. This one didn't have windows in the back. That felt safer. She slid the doors open and pulled a sweater from the double bag, stashed in a cubby hole in the floor. The van smelled like her. Old lady smell.
She was in her early 40s now. She had lived in one van or another for the last 13 years. She didn't miss walls any more than she missed paying council tax or looking over her shoulder. She was mobile, never far from a friend, always a moving target. She hardly ever thought about that old, huge house she'd grown up in, the one that the bone ditch had bought and paid for, along with her parents. But when she did think about it, she found that it was perfectly represented in her memory. She could conjure it as a very real and permanent place in her head. She travelled so much that these days she made memories geographically. She thought in maps, not facts, and to those perfectly rendered spaces in her mind she accreted impressions and associations. These days she kept a small city in her head, threaded through with wildernesses and battlefields. Geography was bigger on the inside. Who needed the real world? So she pulled on her sweater and looked back to the shoreline, where her friend was sitting, still and alone. Elliot wouldn't relish having Gavin's world in her head. They had met years before when a drug-dealing friend she had made in London had passed her his name as someone who might be able to shine a light on Kataki Eleison. She had expected a new foundation. She had found an old ruin. Poor Gavin. Now that she and Harriet were staying with him, there were more people talking to him on a daily basis than he had been used to for the last decade. What was that line? A whirlwind is in the thorn tree. This was how she imagined Gavin's brittle mind, sometimes chaotic, sometimes a savage wreck. But it wasn't Kataki's fault, Elliot knew. It wasn't anyone's fault, but had the bone ditch not happened to him, did she really imagine that he would still be like this? What had the bone ditch done to her? You know, said the old man as she returned to the rocks, I can hear when someone's thinking about me. I was just wondering whether Harriet was aggravating you so much because it isn't as aggravating as you thought it would be having her here. Oh, please. Maybe you're hoping to perform some unnameable rite lit by the gibbous moon. Gavin laughed. Well, we do have so much in common, an existential horror of the world and that strange old lady who shows up on our doorsteps from time to time. I'm not old, Elliot said. You look old, he replied. That's just because I don't moisturise. Sure, said Gavin, though the fact you live in a van doesn't help either. It was her body. Bad food, awful mattress, cold showers, a lifetime on the road. All these elements had given her a corpse's physique. But in Elliot's head she was still young, juggling new ideas, every day a new philosophy to find a point of view for. An animated cadaver, she supposed, which felt appropriate. On the other hand, Gavin still looked pretty spry. He was in his mid-fifties, cold air and wood smoke honed, wiry and bright-eyed. But his mind was ancient, battered and weathered, like an old engine that is constantly and randomly cranked between chaotic high exertion and crashing stall, poorly taken care of, maintained by a sadist with no respect for the beautiful things he was still capable of, all the wonderful places he could still go. When Elliot visited Gavin, which was about once every five or six months, sometimes she crashed on his sofa, but sometimes she stayed in the van. It wasn't fair on him to get too close when he was stalled, when he had collapsed, so she stayed in his driveway, a respectful distance. When she got too close, when anyone got too close, his skin didn't blush, it became seared. He couldn't take it, he would stammer and crumple. As Elliot talked to him in those times, she would watch him slowly die, like a peach rotting away in seconds of time-lapsed photography. Elliot had taken her first trips up to visit him in order to learn about Katakia Lazon and Gavin's interpretation of the bone ditch. But then later she had visited to check up on him, a friend who had isolated himself because he was afraid that the world would kill him, or that what he feared was in him and would seep out and infect the world. You know, said Gavin, Harry doesn't think we're about to kidnap a man. She doesn't realise that she's about to become a criminal. Do you feel like you're about to become a criminal? Elliot asked. He scratched the back of his neck as he watched the sun go down. She thinks that the rag and bone man is like a shugoth or a mygo or something, not even an animal. She half imagines he's going to turn into mush as soon as we confront him. And you? asked Elliot. I don't think I care anymore. I just want to know what he knows, hmm. Elliot said. You don't think this is going to end, do you? Gavin asked. Elliot shook her head. He'll turn out to be something we haven't predicted. I don't think there are as many answers in the world as people think, but yes, yes, I do think we're about to become criminals. Professor Harriet Elderlock had told Elliot about the rag and bone men the year before, based on an ancient book that had turned up in a funeral clearance sale at a mansion in a town in New England. Harriet was a professor of literature and folklore from an old New England university on the mossy, misty and mouldy banks of a slow black river that trailed down to the shore from dark, endless woods, where none of the stories had happy or conclusive endings. That book, 
leather-bound and custom-made, was written in some strange alphabet, had reinforced several of the professor's fascinations and fears, and set her on a search for more information about a secret trail of pilgrims who accumulated profane lore and sacred knowledge on their eldritch path between the everyday world she recognised and the Cyclopean world she had always been terrified of. Harriet was no longer married. Harriet's children no longer spoke to her. But now Harriet knew that she had always been right to have been afraid of what she didn't know. There are hundreds of these books in the world, Harriet had argued. They turn up in secret libraries, bricked up crypts, abandoned homes in the middle of nowhere. All written by these, these monks who have always been amongst us, corrupting and preaching and stealing from us as they trail across the planet. They're criminals, murderers, priests, and they serve an ancient, dead, unknowable power that they call the Bone Ditch. Elliot had a lot of friends across the world, and each of them was immediately recognisable by dint of their impossible belief systems and negligible understanding of probability. But every now and again, one of them would say something that rang an association with her own private conspiracy theology. The book said that, Elliot had demanded. It used that word, bone ditch. Harriet nodded, less triumphant than terrified. They serve the bone ditch. They steal and accumulate treasures and secrets, sowing fear and suspicion and discord in return. They call it trading. They are obsessed with hoarding artefacts that they can bring back word of to their master. Mistress, Elliot had thought, but it was considered impolite in these reeling and vertiginous circles to interrupt a deranged rant in mid-spiral. But the point is, Harriet had continued, we can use their desire for treasure against them. We can lure one to us and capture it. Him, Elliot had thought. The sun set, they drove off. They assaulted and kidnapped the stranger who apparently believed in something weirder than what they believed in. He regained consciousness and they unmasked him. And finally, Elliot Rent recognised Dove Kittery. You know him, said Harriet. We went to university together 20 years ago, didn't we? Dove smiled. Of course, he was lying in a hole in the ground and two strangers and his ex-boyfriend's old housemate were staring at him. Waves crashed off in the distance, stars danced overhead. Bones leered out at him from the excavated earth on all sides. Elliot, where the fuck am I? What the fuck are you doing? Don't answer him. He might be hypnotising you. What? Jesus. No, said Harriet. Of course he'll look familiar to one of us. That'll be how he tries to convince us to let him go. I see a fucking fiend. You see an old friend. He sees a link to his old girlfriend. Don't you see? It's so obvious. He's playing our roles back to us. We were right all along. Harriet... Don't use my name. He wants an advantage. The root of all power is in the... He, she continued talking in this vein. But as far as Dove was concerned, it was a vein already pretty well bled, and there was nothing much worth listening to. The hole he was in was a ragged trench that reached off in a number of different directions. Oh, Christ, just say it. They had dumped him in a ditch. And those things that looked like bones sputtering out of the dirt walls? Yes, they really were bones. This was a collapsed cemetery. How? On the nose. Someone was planning a ceremony, probably of the exorcism or physical torture variety. In the twenty years since he had last seen Elliot, he had thought of her frequently and never in the light of someone who would stoop to something like this. But the man to her right looked haunted in all the wrong ways, and the woman to the left with the library card and the scant respect for the laws of physics also seemed the dangerous sort. But he was pleased to see his old friend, he noticed. He looked up at her and smiled. She smiled back. You knew him at university? asked the older man. Wait, was he the friend that you were sleeping with? Had he not just been assaulted, kidnapped and left knee-deep in corpse dirt, he might have recognised sooner that expression of social panic as it crossed Elliot's face. Gavin! Elliot snapped. What? said Dove. Dove, I'm sorry. You slept with Michael. The stone that Harriet threw hit him just above the left eye. Blood flooded Dove's eye socket before he hit the ground. Gouts of blood turned the grey, mouldy earth black. He's trying to attack us said the American woman. He's trying to convince us that this is normal. He's trying to pretend that this makes sense. He yelled at her to shut up, but that just made her crazier. Look at his face, look at his face, Harriet screamed. Can you see it? Can you see the skull under his face? It's her. I was right. He was blind, so he couldn't tell what was happening, but it seemed like the man Elliot had called Gavin was dragging away the crazy one, while his old friend leapt down into the ditch with him. He touched the wound and sure enough felt bone beneath his face. He was immediately sick and found himself shivering wildly. Oh, God, Dove, are you OK, Dove? The blood didn't stop bubbling out of him, so he didn't feel the obligation to reply. Elliot got Dove out of the ditch and led him to the van. There were a series of small bolt holes set into the floor of the vehicle, and out of one, Elliot produced a bottle of water and a small first aid kit. She set out cleaning his wound with water and then with TCP. The smell, familiar in all the best ways since childhood, was a welcome alternative to the gothic sinkhole that had been planned for him earlier. 
Once Elliot was convinced the wound was clean, she tied a really quite expert bandage. Crazy, lonely old age Elliot seemed a lot more together than bright-eyed, sleep-with-your-boyfriend university Elliot. I'm sorry, Dove, Elliot said again. Her voice was lower, rougher than he remembered it. She was twice as old now as the girl he had known. Dove tried to smile. People don't call me Dove anymore, he said weakly. It's nice to hear again. What do they call you? Elliot asked. I'm not sure. It doesn't always crop up. We weren't going to hurt you, Elliot said. <laughs> Did the other one know that? Dove replied. Gavin and I, we were always going to stop it going too far. We just wanted to know more. You wanted to scare me. Did it work? Elliot asked. The rag and bone man laughed weakly. You believe I work for an infernal fiend creature from the pit. What exactly did you think you were going to have to do to me to make me scared? Elliot didn't reply. I didn't know it was going to be you. He felt calmer, though. His head still ached like the prehistoric axe wound that it was, but he somehow found the wherewithal to smile at her. Can you believe I'm actually believe that I am me? She smiled back at him, but Dove could see the bottom of that smile. Elliot, I'm sorry about how we left things. What do you mean? He reached out and held on to her, barely able to see her in the dark. I've thought about it a lot. I was really young and stupid and I've always regretted it. Your parents died? I just didn't know how to handle that. I just didn't know what to say. Your whole world ended and you, all you had for company was the two of us, Michael and me. We weren't very... We weren't very... Dove hesitated, unsure of the word. We... I... I didn't know how to approach something that big. I think I pretended it was small. I think I pretended it was manageable. She wasn't smiling anymore, but she was staring right at him. Listen to me. It was manageable. They. Them. I think I just tried not to make a fuss. and I think I pretended that it was all going to be okay. Twenty years alone and still dragging dead bones around behind her. A walking gibbet. Elliot lived in a van and her parents had died in a car crash. She went to sleep every night with the smell of diesel in her nose, sleeping above an unexploded bomb. But hearing her old friend talk about them, she started to remember that mum and dad had been real. Elliot was older now than her mum had been when she had died. She'd known that, of course, but there, just then, Dove made her feel it, inside her. I'm sorry about Michael, Elliot said quietly. Did you really sleep with him? Dove asked. Yes. He hesitated. Amazed, he realised that that this was how you made a foot soldier in the army of an infernal fiend creature of the pit feel scared. Why? I was young, said Elliot, and I wanted to, and, and I wanted to feel bad. Dove suddenly felt Michael there in his mind, that stupid idiot who'd always made him laugh and always made him feel giddy and horny and good and hopeful. He realised all of a sudden that Michael had always been inside him, a beautiful idea that had meant far more than a memory, now suddenly changed, hobbled. There had been so very little of Dove in those days, but back in those days he had still felt so big. What had accounted for that? Had Dove mistaken the happiness of his world for some essential actual part of himself? He never felt that happiness anymore. Happiness felt different these days. A small seed you hoarded rather than an atmosphere you inhabited. Meanwhile, Michael grinned at him inside his skull. And of course Michael was very good at it, said Dove. Elliot laughed despite her best intentions. Yes, yes he was. Further away, back at the ditch, Gavin was hugging Harriet as she cried and cried and cried. You said you wouldn't lose control, Gavin said to her. I didn't lose control. I had to do it. We were in danger. We weren't. He was the one in danger. Harriet pulled away from him. What would you know? You just want to find your ex. I'm getting revenge. I'm fighting a war against monsters. That man back there didn't kill your sister, said Gavin. No one killed your sister. She killed herself. It wasn't suicide. She had everything going for her, Harriet said. There was no reason to do what she did. She was brilliant at her job. She was making a fortune. She had friends everywhere. She was winning, winning at all of it. There was no reason for her to jump, no reason at all. Something crawled inside her head. Some fucking worm crawled inside her head and ate her up. What they left behind, that's what jumped. Harriet, none of that has anything to do with that man back there. It was the bone ditch, said Harriet. I know it was. They hated her, her fund, just because it invested in things they didn't approve of. So they got to her. Bone ditch ate her. Gavin had heard the story before. He still didn't believe it. And I'm not looking for my friend, Gavin said at last. I know my friend's gone. I want to talk to the woman who helped her on her way. 
The bone ditch, said Harriet. No, Gavin said. This woman, Kataki Eleazon. It seems that she offered my friend a way out, and she took it. I just want to speak to Ms Eleazon and say sorry, see if she will tell me where my friend went. You don't have to say sorry. Yes, I do, said Gavin. My friend, someone I cared about very much, she disappeared, and it seemed to me that Ms Eleazon and her company were responsible. I couldn't get any answers and I acted up. I posted blogs, sent threats, spiteful stuff, horrible stuff. That was how Elliot found me. That's how you got ill? Harriet asked. I think I'd been ill for a while, but that was how I realised that I was ill, Gavin said. I fell. I just fell and I couldn't get up out of the hole again. That final push and I fell. I fell and all those terrible things that I'd been running to keep away from caught up with me and fell down on top of me and I, I couldn't get up. For the longest time. Gavin looked inestimably sad. I didn't feel like me anymore. I knew just enough to know that what I was, what I was, was a horrible parody of the man I'd been, and I couldn't imagine a way out of that hole. And I stayed in the hole, in the ditch. And then years and years went by, I think. Gavin shook his head and continued. I know Ms Eleazon and her crew are up to something strange. They employ Elliot's friend to do some strange, weird stuff, just like I'm sure they're paying my friend to do somewhere. And yes, they call themselves Bone Ditch or One Itch or whatever. And we look at them from the outside and think, what are they building in there? And we imagine the worst. But the worst clings to you, not to them. And then years go by, just because you fell. Harriet, perhaps your sister just fell one day, before she jumped. You don't believe in monsters, said Harriet. You believe in being afraid of monsters. Maybe. Do you know what the fantastic is? Harriet asked. Of course I do. Brilliant, amazing, terrific. No, 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 Harriet continued. It's a literary term. It means the hesitation between being real and being unreal. Like when you wake up from a dream. Is this real or only a dream? Or was the dream real? That moment of not knowing, not understanding what kind of story you're in. That's what they call the fantastic. Elliot said something similar earlier tonight, Gavin said. Is the world really as bad as I'm afraid it is? Or what if all that horror I see in the world is just in my head? I know how simple that sounds, but I can't quite fathom the scale of the thing. What if the world isn't as bad as I think it is? That reminds me of something else, said Harriet. Have you heard of Theodicy? Of course I have. It's like a long journey. Harriet smiled. No, you're thinking of the Odyssey. Theodicy is a theological term, a religious term. It's the philosophical discipline that religious scholars follow to try and find out how justice works in a system that balances the belief of an omnipotent and moral god in a world that's full of evil. Big questions, then. The biggest, Harriet said. Theologians used to look at the 1755 Lisbon earthquake as the ultimate expression of evil that they had to account for in a world that had nevertheless been created by loving and an all-powerful god. Tens of thousands of people died in that earthquake and the fires and the floods that came after it. Physical evil. 200 years of trying to balance that scale and then we committed the Holocaust. Moral evil. So how do they balance it? Harriet shrugged. I don't know. I'm a literature professor, not a divinity professor. The best piece I read argued for a recognition that there is evil in the world and therefore a refusal to accept that God has behaved justly. But defiance in the face of that. Protest, not despair. Failure would be refusing to call out evil when you see evil, or giving in to despair when you face it. That makes sense to me. But you know what Don Juan told Castaneda when embarking on a Mescalita trip? You must prepare for knowledge as if you are preparing to go to war, with respect and discipline and single-mindedness. Harriet seemed calmer now. Gavin knew that she sh he should have had faith in her. Elliot picked her soldiers carefully. I don't believe in God, Harriet said, but I believe in tides and trade winds. Gravitational forces much stronger than us that influence and manipulate us on a grand scale. Religion, the madness of crowds, philosophies, politics, moralities. But some of those forces aren't kind and have to be fought. I bet you were a really great teacher, Gavin said. I was, I think I was. That life feels like a dream now. What are you going to do now, he asked. She sighed. I've had enough. I think I'm going to go home. I don't think I want to be a part of this anymore. I think you're very brave, said Gavin. I don't know, I think I just want to be sad and be by myself for a while. Don't be sad forever, Gavin said. Thank you, said Harriet Elderlock. I hope you find your way out of your hole.
I saw Michael, actually, said Dove. About 15 years ago, I was following up on an incident at the Millennium that he had gotten himself involved in. What was that? Elliot asked. There was a party where a media millionaire died with all his guests. I remember that, she said. The mask of the red tops. That was you? Dove hesitated. That was friends of mine. So, said Elliot, are you an evil priest from an impossible malevolent occult sect come to destroy us then? Of course not, he replied. I'm just pleased to see you. Dove, I've met it. It. Your friend, she said, the bone ditch. Dove couldn't be glib, not about that, about her. Then I'm very jealous. You haven't met it. Dove shrugged. Just another callow undergraduate all over again. Not all of us do. We know about her, of course, but we don't all get to meet her. Why not, Elliot asked. I think it's so that we can keep, not an open mind, but so that we can keep more than one mind. We live in a world that has her in it, and we live in a world without her in it. So we live in two worlds, two minds, twice the real estate. But you know that she exists, Elliot said. It's faith, or doubt, ambiguity, that, what would you call it, that hesitation. It's a discipline. I think it's good for me not to know for sure. I think that the doubt is good for me. Just this morning I met a crazy old lady with kick-ass administration and networking skills, or I met a real-life witch. Either way, I'm glad I met her. She started laughing. I'm sorry. You wanted answers tonight, didn't you? I think I wanted to feel something real. Actually. And then you drop into my trench. Actually, said Dove, I think I was pushed. But it makes a change from Michael dropping into your trench. She laughed. I missed you. Why didn't you stay in touch? I blinked and then you were gone, he said. I did try to find you again. And instead I found Kataki Eleazan and she offered me a job. She said working for her would eventually lead to you. It took long enough, but she was right. And in the meantime, I have this amazing job. Meeting Kataki changed my life. She wanted you to find me, Elliot said. This was an important message and Dove didn't want it to sound like nostalgia. He smiled. She wants you back. Not Kataki, her. That offer you told me about, it's still open. You can go back at any time, or, you know, you could come and join me. Almost every single night, Elliot Rent wakes in the night, just long enough to register that she is alone and cold. That's life in a van, on an endless road, looking for something, or unable to settle for anything, or frightened of losing something, or... What's wrong? Dove asked. She wiped her eyes. She was an old woman now. In a couple of years, this lifestyle would leave her looking like Pirate Jenny on the beach. A sad, moonlit weep was beneath her. This was beneath her. Elliot Rent looked at the friend she hadn't seen in 20 years, who somehow looked 10 or so years younger than her, and felt something in her ache. Elliot, what's wrong? Dead parents, empty examples, endless fucking roads. You don't have to come in all the way out of the cold, said Dove. Just warm yourself on our bonfire, just for a bit, see if you like it. No, she said. And she realised at last that this was the answer she had been looking for when she had set this trap with Gavin and Harriet. Not really the truth about Kataki Eleazan, or even the truth behind whatever unholy thing was lurking behind them all in the dark. She had been looking for the answer to the question of whether she was ready to stop, whether she was ready to... to... There was no bone in her smile, and Dove took her hand. It's okay, I understand. He paused. What's she like? And Elliot remembered that hotel room that night. She remembered Kataki walking her up to the door and assuring her that she would be right outside the whole time. She remembered, 20 years ago, Kataki hugging her before she opened the door and ushered her in. The hotel room had been exactly like every single hotel room she had ever visited in her entire life. Except for the fact that sitting there by the window was the first thought you've ever had once you've lost your mind. The bone ditch. Of course the bone ditch had been a she. That was obvious as soon as Elliot had looked at her. She had stood up from her chair and she had stepped over to Elliot. I've missed you so much, she had said to Elliot. An hour or so later, Elliot knocked on the door at the back of the pub and Gavin opened it. Where's the madman, he asked. He's gone home, Elliot said with a sad smile. Where's the crazy lady? The same, Gavin said. Well, good, I was rooting for those kids. Gavin poured them both a cup of tea. 
She sat at the table in the middle of the room and didn't burst into tears. I'm shattered too, Gavin said, completely shattered. I've got to turn in. Take my bed, Elliot. I'll grab the sofa. She smiled at him. You sure? Harriet was okay, you know, in the end. We talked. It hasn't been easy for her. I know, Elliot said. I told you so. So, was that your old boyfriend then? No, that was my boyfriend's boyfriend. Bit of a coincidence? Not really, Elliot said. But you didn't kill him and you let him go, so we didn't learn anything. I wouldn't go that far. He's given me an address. What? Back down south, Elliot said. He told me he'd meet me in Essex in ten days. He's got an errand to run, but he'll be down south in ten days. And he said he'd tell me all about Katakia Lazon and your friend. To be continued, then, said Gavin. I know, cheap, isn't it? Back at the trench, Harriet sat and watched the slowly dawning sunlight pick away the shadows from the eye sockets of the skulls in the collapsed cemetery. By her feet was a shovel. She had intended to fill in the ditch, but she was too tired. It was a five-mile walk down to the main road. There was a pub there where the bus south to Fort William stopped. She would be moving again soon, away from here. She knew in her heart that her sister had been an awful person. But sometimes it's easier to believe that there are monsters who are far, far worse and easier to blame than the people you love with all your heart, with whom you would never leave your children. Hello there, said the voice. She looked up. She almost didn't recognise him in the dawn, but it was the rag-and-bone freak she'd wanted to kill just a few hours before. The bloody wound on his face was a dead giveaway, but he was smiling. She stood up and said nothing. My car is back by the shoreline. Can I give you a ride? No strings, I promise. Why would you do that? she asked. <laughs> I'm a rag-and-bone man of the trade. I live in the shadow of the bone ditch and I write the world's secrets in an invisible book. If someone isn't threatening to kill me, then I don't have any stories to trade for sordid trysts and shady bars. Besides, said Dove, you're the friend of a friend. Her smile only lasted for a second, but the rag-and-bone man saw it. He smiled back. That's all I wanted to see, he said, and he reached out suddenly and pushed her backwards into the ditch. She landed with a sickening crunch. He peered down at her, noticing the impossible angle of her neck as she whispered into the darkness. He counted the last of her blinks and watched the final bubble of blood burst at the end of her nose. He could still see the terminal echo of that smile on her dead lips. A crow landed close by. The witch's crow, perhaps. He picked up the shovel and filled in just enough of the ditch to cover his tracks. Gavin would finish off the job, no doubt. He wouldn't think to look for his friend down there. You don't expect to find friends in a ditch. He walked off in the direction of his car as the sun began to light up the landscape. The air was chilly, but so fresh it filled him with an energised joy that twelve and a half hours in a grave should have crushed with a threat of torture and death and having to give up secrets. There was purple in the air and vanilla gold spun out across the delicate and fragrant immensity of the sky. The old hippie was delighted. To be continued. Thank you for listening. Uh, more soon. And if you'd like to know more, please visit www.boneditch.wordpress.com. Thank you.